Hello, welcome to the You Heard It Here podcast from XL Vets. My name's Fiona Farmer, a qualified vet and your host for this series of podcasts. XL Vets is a community of independently owned veterinary practices who work in partnership to achieve veterinary excellence. Today I am joined by the brilliant Ed Hill from Thrums Vet Group in Scotland. Ed has gained his advanced practitioner certificate in sheep health and production, so he is perfectly positioned to talk to us today about ram fertility. So Ed, we're so lucky to have you here with us today. Not only are you an extremely experienced sheep vet, you run your own farm and you love nothing more than being outside in our beautiful countryside, but I hear you also run marathons as well. Yeah. (laughs) So hi Ed, thank you so much for being here. Let's get on to our topic of ram fertility and testing tups. Grant, no, thank you very much for having me on. So Ed, before we think about the how and the why of fertility testing, what are we actually aiming for? What's the benchmark for a ram that is performing well and what percentage of ewes pregnant after a first breeding cycle should farmers be aiming for? I guess the aim really is to have a, a fully fit and fertile ram stud in advance of, in advance of mating. Um, when we sit down with the farmer and, and decide on a set of targets for the year ahead and how many lambs we want to rear from our ewes, um, obviously getting the ewes in lamb in the first place is, is the first major hurdle to, to hitting that target. And clearly the tups, the rams play a, a major part in that. So if we can go into the to the sheep year with a fully fertile ram stud, um, then we're setting ourselves well up for for the year ahead. In terms of what percentage of ewes um, we would expect a, a ram to, to be getting pregnant after a first breeding cycle, um, I think it'd be nice if he was getting something like 80% pregnant in that in that first cycle so that we've got a nice, efficient, compact lambing period when it comes around to lambing time. So a good fertile ram should be getting 80% of the herd pregnant. Something like that would be good, yeah. Yeah. So then the most obvious question that springs to mind is why do we carry out a fertility test? So what extra benefits do we get from doing this, just opposed to letting the rams just run with the ewes without testing them? I guess there's a few reasons why we want to to carry out a fertility test. Um, The first might be a a farmer who's selling rams for breeding um, and wants to demonstrate that the product he's selling is is fit for purpose, so that the ram that he's selling is fertile. Um, I think it's important to state at at this point as well that a fertility test is really only good for the day it's taken on. It doesn't tell us anything about what his, his future fertility might be. It's not a guarantee of future fertility. Um, but it does allow some degree of security and the knowledge that the tup being sold, sold should be up for the job. Um, I guess the next scenario that uh, we'd advise fertility testing is, is when a farmer is expecting rams to work under a high pressure situation. Um, so this might be where we're single sire mating. So it's just a single ram with a group of views. Um, it might be where uh, we're running rams at a particularly high ratio, so maybe something like uh, 1 to 80 ewes, something like that, um, or potentially where ewes have been synchronised for oestrus. So these these would be considered sort of high-pressure situations, and if we were doing that, we would definitely want to know that, that the rams we're using are fully fertile. So we'd always recommend um, fertility testing in advance of those in, in advance of those situations. And then... Um, lastly, but probably the most common setting is actually just in a more commercial setting. Um, typically on a commercial farm, rams would be in multi-sire groups. So you might have several several rams in with a group of ewes with the intention that if one wasn't working just as well as he should, if he was subfertile or infertile, there would be other rams in that group that are able to, to compensate. Um, but 
that that strategy definitely does help reduce the risk, but it doesn't eliminate it completely. Um, what you you'll sometimes find is that a a subfertile ramp might actually be the more dominant one within the group, um, and therefore actually put off um, the more fertile ramps from from working. Um, so ultimately, for for a farmer that's trying to achieve high scanning percentages in a compact lambing, even in a commercial setting, it, it may well still still be advisable. That's interesting. Interesting to hear that really actually all setups would require fertility testing for best outcomes. Yeah. So a fertility exam involves examining the ram and also examining the sperm. With regards to the clinical exam of the ram, what exactly are you looking at? The sperm part of the, the examination is probably, yeah, the, the slightly more interesting part, but it's no use without that clinical exam first, without a physical exam. If the, if the ram's not capable of delivering it, um, then yeah, then it's academic really. Um, so basically working top to toe um, from uh, the whole ram. So um, we want to probably start with his teeth um, and make sure that um, he's not broken mouthed or got misaligned teeth. Um, teeth are going to be important for maintaining the next thing that we're considering, which is the body condition of, of the ram. So we want them in, in good body condition, basically fit, not fat. So on a body condition score scale, we're probably optimum would be something like three and a half out of five um if he's too fat and carrying too much fat around his scrotum that will affect his semen quality if he's too thin he probably won't have the energy reserves to efficiently see him through a fairly intensive period of, of work over the next few weeks um so yeah making sure his teeth are fine and, and that he's in an appropriate body condition then probably want to just check him over and make sure he's not got things like brisket sores so if he's got sores on his chest he's going to be uh, less willing to to work um he's got to be pretty strong and stable on his feet so we don't want him being lame um and we don't want yeah malformations of his feet or chronically misshapen feet because um, that's going to affect his ability to to get around the park and do his work um and then from there we'll probably focus in on the on the reproductive side of things. So a physical examination of his scrotum and testicles makes sure that they are of an appropriate size, um, that there's no lumps and bumps, there's no soft flabby bits, um, there's no pathology on, on the surface of the scrotum. And then looking at his sheath, um, and then finally as part of the examination, probably looking at his penis to make sure there's no sores or, or anything like that that's gonna put him off work. So a nice thorough examination. And typically how long do you think that would take to perform? Um, probably just a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah, not long to do. A, yeah, not long to do a, a quick but comprehensive physical exam. So a nice straightforward procedure that can be done when you're on the farm looking at other things, having a chat about the upcoming breeding season. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even if a farmer wasn't um, asking a vet to do a full fertility examination, those sort of um, checks should be something that a farmer probably could and should be doing himself with uh, with rams prior to breeding. And it's usually something, if a farmer wasn't confident with it, then a vet would be happy to demonstrate and advise. Yeah. And so onto what you deemed as a slightly more exciting area from a veterinary point of view, what's involved with checking the sperm? And do you routinely do this on every fertility test that you carry out? So, yeah, every fertility test that I carry out or a vet would be carrying out would probably be involving a, a sperm test as well. As I said, um, the farmers, yeah, could and should be able to do that sort of physical check over side of things. So if I was getting involved, it usually, yeah, usually would involve a, a sperm test as well.
Um, so to collect the sperm sample, um, most vets will probably be using a technique called electroejaculation, um, which is basically a small probe that's placed per rectum um, and delivers a, a mild electrical stimulus to the accessory sex glands. And what that does is stimulate the, the round to give us a, a small sperm sample to get a look at. Um, once we've got that sample, we kind of do three key tests on it. The first two are done fresh on farm, and the, the last test is usually done back in the in the practice lab uh, on a stained up sample. Um, so we do, yeah, three tests. We do a gross motility, a progressive motility, and then a sperm um, abnormality count. So the gross motility, that's our first test. Um, and that's just looking under sort of times four magnification on the microscope on farm. And that just gives us really an idea of how dense the sperm is um, and how fast it, it's swimming as a mass. So we're looking at, at swirling motion here, but quite, quite far zoomed out. Um, we'd grade that on a scale of zero to five. Um, and most, most tops that we look at would be, yeah, should be sitting somewhere around four or five. Um, Ideally, it should be yeah three or greater, um, but we have to accept occasionally due to it being an artificial technique, we sometimes get a slightly poorer sample on this one, maybe a two out of five, which in, under circumstances would be acceptable as long as the next two tests that we're going to do were, were fine. Okay, so zero is poor and five is best. Yeah, yeah. So zero would be, you would be looking at the slide and there would be no movement there at all. Um, whereas five, you're getting very vigorous, very fast waves of, of sperm swimming around. Okay. So the next, the next part of the test is what we call progressive motility. Mm -hmm. And that's taking our sample and, and diluting it down a little bit with some saline. We then look at it under closer detail. So we can now see individual sperm swimming um, under times 10 magnification. And what we're doing here is making an assessment of the percentage of sperm that are swimming in an active forward moving manner. And really what we're looking for is anything greater than 60% um, on, on that test. Um, but ideally a bit higher just to give us um, a bit of, yeah, a safety margin. But yeah, 60% or greater is, is what we're after. And these two tests you said were done on the farm. If you were to carry those tests out and you had poor results, would you repeat the test again or would you leave it a day or two? Or would you take that as the, as the sample? No, so if I got an un if got an unexpected poor result on those two tests, say we were doing a batch of tops, say we're doing five or ten or whatever, um, what I would normally say is he's given us a poor sample just now. Let's leave him to rest for ten or fifteen minutes while we do the others, um, and we'll come back to him at the end and reassess again at the end of the session. Yeah, it, an unexplained result. I would probably try and get at least two samples on the day um, with a bit of rest in between. Yeah, so you, you give them a fair chance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, the, the last part of that sperm assessment is looking at sperm morphology. So this is now back at the practice, um, stained up and looking under 100 times magnification and basically individually appraising each sperm um, over at least 100 sperm, looking at the shape, um, noting any abnormalities and taking a total count. Um, and what we're looking for is at least 70% of them should be normal um, and no more than 20% should have defects of, their, of the head of the sperm. So pretty thorough examination there. Yeah, yeah. And that gets reported back to the farmer and presumably that exam alongside the clinical exam 
and lets you say whether this tup is good for breeding or not good for breeding? Yeah, so we would interpret it all together, the physical exam, the sperm sperm analysis, and ultimately we would yeah uh, deliver a pass or a fail. Um, sometimes it will be an inconclusive result, um, and that will go with advice. Um, certainly an inconclusive result or a fail would go with advice about what we would want to do next with, with that round. Okay. And what are the most common things that you find in these examinations that can cause subfertility? Probably one of the more common findings is something like a thickening or a lump within the part of the testicle we call the epididymis. So that's where sperm is stored and matured. Um, so it, it's not uncommon to get infection in these parts, which actually in itself will quite often go unnoticed at the time. Um, but then when he's presented to for examination, it's just a scarring or thickening of, of these parts. So that's a relatively common finding. We'll sometimes get testicular atrophy, so testicles that have reduced in size or are soft um, in feeling. But, but quite often what we'll find is, is a round that presents with, with no physical abnormalities, but, um, but a poor sperm sample. And if you do find that a ram is subfertile during, during your examinations, what do you advise to do with him? Um, so that'll depend a little bit. If we find a ram that has a physical abnormality um, that is likely to affect his fertility, and that's coupled with a poor sperm sample, then quite often the advice with that will be that that ram is not fit for purpose and should be culled from the flock. If, uh, as is probably the slightly more common finding if we find a ram that has no physical abnormalities but delivers a poor sperm sample on the day um, we can't state anything about the permanence of of that state that's only on on today and, and fertility will both decrease and increase over time um, so the advice would be that 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 ram should be resampled after a period of time now, ideally, we probably want to be leaving it something like six weeks to, to resample that is that, you know, six to eight weeks is probably how long it takes for, for sperm to be produced within the testicles. So hence leaving it for that period of time. Quite often in reality, um, we don't have that amount of time to play with between when we do our sample and, and the commencement of tapping. So that would be, it might be a case of just leaving it a week or two and then resampling, but you would never, yeah, you would never give advice about culling around based on a single unexpected poor sperm result. So we know that fertility exams are important. When should we be doing them? Um, it's a bit of a bit of a compromise, really. So as we said, um, the fertility test is is only representative of the day that it's taken on. So from one point of view, the closer we do it to the day of tapping, um, the more representative it is, the more accurate a result it will be. But that said, if we'd left it till the day before we put the taps out, that leaves us very little time to do anything like retesting if required or any treatment um, or indeed replacing them, um, seeking out replacements if they were needed. Um, so it's a compromise and what I would tend to say is sort of four to six weeks pre-tapping should give us enough time to, to do those things, to retest, to find replacements, but also be close enough to tapping to be accurate, uh, an accurate as possible result. And in terms of managing the rams ahead of breeding, during that time leading up to tapping, what do you need to consider in terms of the rams um, husbandry to make sure that they're in prime condition? 
Sure. So, yeah, I think the first thing to say is it's important to to never forget the tups because um, they can quite often easily be forgotten and left in a paddock throughout periods of the year where we're not thinking about mating. But um, we know that body condition is not something that we can quickly affect. So we definitely need to be you know, caring for, for tups all year round and making sure that they're coming into that sort of six to eight week period pre-mating in, in good body condition because if, if we leave it until until six weeks pre-tupping it, it's going to be too late to get a decent amount of body condition back on them if, if they are too thin. Um, but yeah, within that in that immediate couple of months run up to tupping, as you say, that's that's when sperm production is is critical. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a few things that we need to think about there. It, if the farm that we're working on is known for trace element deficiencies, for example, um, it might well be the protocol that the user given some supplementation a few weeks pre-tupping, maybe in the form of a drench or a bolus. But if we left that to just a few weeks pre-tupping for the tups, that's probably slightly too late. So we want to be thinking about doing that well in advance, a good couple of months pre-tupping. Um, again, these tups may well need wormed. Um, they may not, so it would be nice to to make that decision based off a worm egg count. But again, that's the sort of thing that we want to think about well in advance, not leaving it too late. Um, we always want to make sure that tups are um, up to date with other uh, vaccinations that the flock might might require. But thinking about that, it's really critical that we are aware that some of these vaccines can cause a transient rise in temperature and therefore can temporarily affect um, sperm production so if we are vaccinating for things like foot rot uh, for example we want to make sure that those are done and in place a good couple of months prior to tapping so that, that we don't affect inadvertently affect sperm production by by trying to look after them with vaccines so as you say yeah tops are out in the field for a lot of the year when they're not actually doing their their main job but it really does pay to consider them as part of the flock and think of them as an investment into the flock and making sure that all of these these points are put into place at the appropriate time so that then when breeding does come around it goes as flawlessly and as efficiently as possible really yeah yeah and i think there was a, a survey or a questionnaire that was done a few years ago um about clostridial and pneumonia vaccination in in tups um, we are, we're all well in the habit of doing it for use pre-lambing and we're well in the habit of doing it for lambs during the growing season. Um, yeah, the survey suggested that there was a significant proportion of tups that were forgotten out of those protocols, but tups are just as, uh, as likely to suffer from these diseases as, as any other sheep. So it's important not to forget things like clostridial vaccination for, for tups. Yeah, that's a great point. Are there any other conditions that may affect a ram's fertility? Um, yeah, I guess just, just like any sheep, there's a long list of conditions that, that can affect them. Um, the one that really just jumped to mind that um, we've referenced a couple of times already is, is lameness. And I think, to my mind, um, tups do seem to be overrepresented when it comes to, to lameness issues. Um, so ultimately, the advice for them is, is the same as, as a wider as wider flock advice but just things like making sure that the conditions that they're kept in are nice and dry and hygienic so they're not standing around near troughs potentially infecting each other with with foot rot or other infectious infectious lameness diseases um we mentioned making sure if we're vaccinating them not to do it in that sort of run-up to tupping 
period of time. But I mean, vaccination against lameness is is very, very effective for foot rot problems. So in discussion with your vet, it may well be appropriate to implement some lameness vaccination protocol for the for the taps, but just making sure we get the timing of that, getting the timing of that right. Um, and ultimately, I know it's, it's a harder decision um, to make with a potentially very valuable tap, but um, yeah, for, for those that have chronically misshapen feet or um, have take repeat bouts of lameness, the, the same advice applies to them as it, as it would to a you. And if they are taking these, these repeat bouts, they're, they're probably always going to be a source of infection for everybody else. And ultimately culling of these animals, removing them from the flock is, is going to be is going to be good advice. Okay, so thinking about replacement rams, what is the best way to manage them? When should they be introduced and what special requirements might they have? Sure. So, I mean, ideally, they should be introduced to, to the new farm as soon as possible. Um, that, that gives them time to acclimatise the farm, to, to the new nutrition, to, um, to the environment that they're going to be expected to, to be working in. So, yeah, uh, as long as possible and that will also allow you to have an effective quarantine protocol in place but I do appreciate that the timings of, of some of these top sales can be a limiting factor on that so as long as possible but um, I appreciate yeah timing the sale will will affect that um, I guess this is a yeah a good opportunity to say that for, for probably quite a lot of farms the purchase rams might be the only incoming stock onto the farm every year um, and therefore they, they pose a risk of bringing in disease. Um, so it, it, it would be good to have a farm specific quarantine protocol in place for these incoming tups. And ideally that should probably last a minimum of a month. And as a minimum probably includes monitoring for lameness, um, a treatment for anthelmintic resistant gut worms, um, and either a test or a treatment for scab. Um, but it may be appropriate to be screening for some other diseases as well, such as Medivisna or OPA. But yeah, it's probably best to, to speak to your own vet about advice on those diseases and, and drawing up a farm-specific quarantine protocol. Um, uh, but also the SCOPS website, Sustainable Control of Parasites in Sheep, um, is a pretty good resource for, for looking at, at quarantine procedures. And we've talked about this a little bit already. You've you sort of broached onto your lame rams, but when when else might you advise culling rams? Yeah, I think we've probably sort of mentioned the, the main reasons. So um, we've referenced uh, his teeth. If he's broken mouth and unable to maintain body condition, um, that's a, a definite candidate for removal from the flock. Um, if he's chronically lame, yeah, um, misshapen feet. Um, if he's got, if we've identified a physical issue within his testicles, um, or as we said, if he's failed a sperm sample, we've allowed him a good six to eight weeks, and we've resampled, and 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 he's failed again. Um, then, to my mind, that's that's yeah, a good reason to um, to be yeah, advising on on culling. And Ed. I'm right in thinking that you were involved in the XL Vets Ram Fertility Survey back in 2020. Was there anything interesting that you found from that? Yeah, it's a, it was a really cool project to be involved with. Um, what we did was sort of collated information from vets across the country, um, and we got results from nearly 600 rams and the result of their fertility tests. 
Um, I think it's probably fair to say that we didn't find anything particularly brand new or groundbreaking, um, but what we did find kind of backed up really nicely what we what we expected. Um, so when when we speak to farmers about the chance of a, a tap being subfertile, we would normally say something like one in five, one in six, six tups might be expected to to fail a test. Um, and that was that was backed up with what we found. So we found that just over 20% of these 600 rams were subfertile on the point of examination. And actually of those, nearly 60% um, had no physical abnormalities at all, but delivered a poor sperm sample. Um, after that, there was about 15% did have a physical issue, and then everything else failed either due to another reason or, or gave an inconclusive result. So. So whilst we didn't discover anything brand new, I think, it, yeah, so it was nice to back up our, our advice um, with, you know, real rounds on real farms in, in big numbers. And some sort of practical tips. If you were to have a ram and he did turn to be subfertile in your examination and you were four to six weeks out from breeding, is it best at that point to try and get a replacement in or do you go for the retest or what, what would you suggest to farmers in those situations? Yeah, so... I think that's probably another really nice reason for doing a whole stud of tups is because what you might do is you might, yeah, let's say um, you went and, and, and semen sampled 10, 10 rams and one failed unexpectedly. Um, but what you might be able to turn around and say is actually, yeah, that's really disappointing one has failed. Um, but actually, look, we've got nine here that we know are fully fertile and working. And so you don't have to go out and spend five, six, seven hundred, eight pounds on a on a replacement ram, um, because we know what you've got is is working. Um, so yeah, you could you could take the advice both ways. You might you might advise a replacement for him, but actually, if you know that uh, you know in stock you've got uh, the rest of the rams are fully fit and working, then then you might not need to do that. Ed, looking at the costs of running a farm and having the vet out to look at animals all the time, how do you weigh up the cost of a fertility exam versus not doing one and the knock-on effects that subfertile rams may have for the flock? Sure. I mean, I appreciate getting the vet out to do a, a full fertility exam on, on tops might seem like a, a, an unnecessary expenditure. But I understand that. Um, but I think... For if, taking a slightly more progressive, proactive point of view, what I would say is that little bit of spend on making sure that we've we've weeded out the the passengers, the subfertile types that are not going to be doing their job. We only need to be increasing scanning percentage by one or two percent across a flock of several hundred sheep to claw back that that initial spend on um, on fertility testing rams. It may well be the case that you, you you spend a few hundred pounds on doing some fertility tests, finding out the the health and status of of your current stud, and therefore not go out and spend hundreds or even thousands on carrying more rams than you need to just in case. So I, I would always advocate that yes, the the little bit of expenditure on doing a fertility test across your your top stud is going to save you money one of those one of those ways. Yeah, so a really worthwhile thing to do. Absolutely, yeah. Ed, thank you so much. You've really clearly explained everything that's involved in a RAM fertility test and why we should be doing them. And for everyone listening, we hope you found it useful and that there are plenty of take-home messages that Ed has given us today. So thank you once again, Ed. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Perfect. No, thank you very much for having me. 
Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and keep an ear out for the next in our series of You Heard It Here. Uh, uh, uh.